You're listening to audio from Pillar Church of Jacksonville, where our goal is to know Jesus and to make him known. If you have questions or want to know more about us, and can text Pillar to 94000 or visit our website at pillarjacks.com. Hey everyone, uh, today we are going to be in the Gospel of John, so I invite you to turn there in your Bibles if you have them. Uh, we will be in John 6 as we continue our series in the book of John. Um, while you guys are turning there, I love the fact that people are starting to wear like red and green sweaters. It is the Sunday before Christmas, uh, so excited about that. I had a very obnoxious like Christmas tie uh, I was going to wear. There were two reasons I didn't wear it. One, it would be distracting during the sermon, Um, but the the other very important factor is I couldn't find it. Um, So... But I was able to find my socks that have like a gingerbread man holding like some eggnog cup, you know, so... You can't see it during the sermon, but that's okay. I still got it on. It counts. All right. So uh, today's passage, we're going to be in John 6, which is an abnormally long passage for what we normally preach. There's 71 verses in what we're going through today. But the reason we decided to keep it that long is because there's a continuous narrative and a continuous theme that we see developed in this chapter, and we didn't want to divide it up. So I originally wasn't supposed to be preaching this week. It was supposed to be JD, and he's like, hey, I'm going to be out of town. You trade me with me? I'm like, yeah, man, no problem. And then I traded, and I saw how long the passage was. I'm like, that's why you wanted uh, to trade. Um, I already told him that. I told him I'd give him a hard time. Uh, but I do appreciate all the work he did last week, kind of setting up uh, John 5 and some of the similar themes we're going to see about, like, the bread of life and things like that. So uh, I appreciate the work he did last week. <clears throat> but... Uh, so I will do something I don't normally do during a sermon. Normally I read the entire passage at the very beginning uh, and then preach. Due to the length and due to just like kind of keeping some of the themes um, together, what I'm going to do instead is uh, read a section and talk about it, read a section and talk about it, breaking up the passage as we go. So uh, what I'll do first is uh, we're going to start in chapter 6, <clears throat> and I'm going to read verses 1 through 21. Uh, and then we'll come back later and, and read the remainder um, as we go through uh, the points for this morning. So, uh, picking up in John chapter 6, verse 1, going through 21. It says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover... The feast of the Jews was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. 
Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land at which they were going. Would you please pray with me? Father God, you are a God who works wonders in your creation. You feed your people, you strengthen your people. You show mastery over the waves and all elements, and yet you care about us enough to meet us in troubled times. In times of distress or weariness, uh, we come to you today seeking help. And we ask for, uh, for your help, for clarity and for understanding to hear your word with fresh ears and with hearts that are eager to listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it, it's interesting uh, what people are willing to believe and it's also interesting what we are willing to not believe. Uh, this is especially true when it, when it comes to works of fiction. I once had a conversation with one of my roommates in college, and somehow we got on the topic of talking about the movie Superman Returns, uh, which came out like 2006, 2007 time frame. And there's this scene in the movie where like all these crime bosses are like on top of this roof. There's this dude with this massive machine gun. He's like firing down at, at people and the cops on the ground. And then Superman shows up, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, they start shooting the guns at him, and obviously, you know, he's Superman, so there's, like, you know, bouncing off all over the place. And he walks up to this one guy with the machine gun. The machine gun runs out of ammunition, and what the guy does is he, he then pulls out a pistol, like, points it at Superman and just, like, fires right at Superman's face. And what the movie does is it does this super slow-motion thing where it's, like, the bullet, like, slowly comes out of the gun, and it's like coming to Superman's face, and it's getting closer and closer and closer, and then the, the bullet hits his eye. It hits Superman's eye, and he doesn't blink. The bullet, like, just shrinks and withers and, like, falls to the ground. And it's supposed to be this awesome, like, hey, you know, he's the man of steel. Look how, look how tough he is. But the thing, interesting thing about this is that my roommate was, uh, I believe he was in the theaters when this happened, and when that happens, when like the bullet hits his eye and nothing happens, just falls down, there's this guy in the theater that goes, yeah, right. And it's just it's like you couldn't believe that Superman could take a bullet. Like, do you know what kind of movie you're watching? <laughs> like, but it's really interesting that that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Like, hey, bro, where were you for the rest of the movie? Like, you can't believe he can take a bullet to the eye, but you had no problem with like the bullets like pinging off his chest. You had no problem that he could fly or that he could pick up a car or that laser beams were coming out of his eyes, but the bullet to the eye was the bridge too far. Isn't it interesting that there are certain things we will believe, certain things we won't believe, and certain things we are willing to suspend belief for, uh, but there's still just some things that we consider too much to believe. 
Today, what we're going to be dealing with uh, in John 6 is a passage uh, where we see quite a few instances of the miraculous. We'll see miracles, and in response to those miracles, we're going to have some teachings given by Jesus that at first seem simple enough and people have no problem believing, but the longer Jesus speaks, the more confused his audience becomes. And Jesus is going to keep taking it to the next level. He's not going to see confusion and just be like, oh, well, hold on, let me... Let me pull that back and make it easier. He's like, you think that's difficult to believe? Listen to this. And he just like keeps dropping truth after truth, depth after depth. And what he won't do uh, is he will not tailor his message to our understanding. He will speak the truth as it exists, working to conform our understanding and our knowledge of him to reality, to the reality that he is the infinite God come to earth. And sometimes it's too far. Sometimes for some people it's too much. It's too over the top. It's too far beyond what our minds can fully understand or what they are willing to accept. But that doesn't change the fact that they are true. So what I want to do today is uh, I want to build up to that point. Uh, I want to show you how this story progresses uh, and how we get there. So Uh, I'll have four points for the sermon today. Each one will kind of correspond to a chunk of scripture that we read. But uh, the first point for today is that, uh, and and all of the points kind of revolve around uh, the people's perception of who Jesus is, or maybe someone's response to what Jesus has said. But the first point is that the people think Jesus is the great prophet. The people think that Jesus is the great prophet. We see this most prominently in verse, verses 14 and 15, where uh, the people recognize that because of the miracles they have seen, that Jesus has to be greater than any of the prophets that have come before, because it seems like he's doing more than anyone else. And because of this, they then seek to take him away by force and make him their king. So take a look at what has happened. Uh, the first thing we see in verse 2 of the chapter is that people are following Jesus because they've seen the miracles that he has done so far. He's been healing uh, sicknesses and diseases that people thought had no earthly cure. And his work is just astounding people. And there's the sense in which people are coming to Jesus, one, to get their needs met, which is good. Uh, There's another sense in which people seem to be coming to Jesus because they want to see a show. And they want to see what else he can do. John sets the stage for us with a little historical context and tells us in verse 3 that uh, it's the time of the Passover, right? The Passover, thus hearkening back to the greatest period of salvation in Jewish history. The Passover symbolized God's great deliverance for his people. It symbolized his great provision for his people. It was a time where God rescued his people from slavery and then brought them to freedom, He saved them from the oppression of Egypt, and God brings his people, this is important, through the waters of the Red Sea, and after bringing them through the water, Moses goes on top of the mountain to receive a message from God. Uh, Sometimes we call it the Ten Commandments. He gets gets the law, and then he comes down off of the mountain to teach the people, and it is after coming off the mountain that the people experience the dramatic provision of God by sending, sending of manna. You know, we, uh, Chris read that earlier from Exodus 16. And manna is just a type of bread. Uh, the people had been complaining against God. They had been so hungry that God sends the manna to them and provides for their needs while they're in the wilderness. And 
It's during the celebration of these events. That's what's calling back to people's minds with the Passover. It's a celebration of this deliverance, of this provision that our current text takes place. And so you'll see, you know, super cool, like you'll see all of these like references or hyperlinks back to the book of Exodus with the Passover and with the provision of the manna. Like Jesus is going to weave those in to what's happening now. So our narrative starts off with Jesus and his disciples, and they see this huge crowd coming to them, and Jesus asks a question to one of his disciples. He says, how are we going to feed all of these people? And that's a legitimate question. Like, has anyone ever hosted an event where way more people show up than what you were expecting them to? And you start to get nervous. You're like, I, I don't know what I'm going to do. Try 5,000 unexpected people showing up and see how you deal with that at your party. And uh, that, that's not even probably a good estimate because it says that there were 5,000 men. So by the time you add women and children into this mix, you're looking at easily 10,000 people. And so what do you do? And Jesus asks this question. It says, as a test, because he already knew what he was going to do. He just wanted to see how these guys would respond. And uh, Philip says in verse 7, it would take 200 denarii to feed everyone. And, uh, and a denarius was just like a day's wage. So 200 denarii would be like seven or eight months of your pay. Like, where are we going to get that kind of money? And then to show even further how dismal the situation and how completely unprepared they are to deal with the problem at hand, Simon adds in in verse 8, and he's like, yeah, um, you know, the best we've got is this kid who brought his lunchbox, and he just happens to have like five loaves of bread and two fish, and that's all the food we've got. And as a side point, I always like to recognize the kid who brought the fish uh, and the loaves. Like, are there no responsible adults <laughs> who brought food to this thing? Um, but I also like because John seems to be, he is the only author in the gospel narratives that actually mentions the boy. Everyone else just says, hey, there are five loaves and two fish. John's the only author that mentions the boy. And I like this kid because, uh, in, in part, he reminds me that no matter how small my contribution is to the kingdom of God, it can still be used for miraculous purposes. No matter how small I think my act of obedience might be, I know that in the hands of Jesus, the implications can be spectacular. So it's just a reminder for me to be, to be faithful, you know, right? even in the little things. But Jesus takes the food, uh, he gives, and then he gives thanks for it. Um, you know, really connecting back, you'll see it in, the, or, excuse me, connecting forward to the Lord's Supper where he breaks the bread, he gives thanks for it. And when he had given thanks, he gave the bread. <clears throat> he gives thanks here. And uh, he gives thanks even though he created the bread. He created the fish. Uh, and yet, James still tells us that all good things come from the Father of lights. And so Jesus is giving thanks for what God the Father has provided. And it should, this too, be received with thanks. And so the food is distributed. Everyone eats as much as they want, and then they collect 12 baskets worth of food. I mean, some wild stuff. Miraculously multiplying food. And we've been trying to solve, like, the world hunger problem for a long time. And here Jesus is creating extra food with no problem at all. And that's why the people see it and begin to freak out. It's like, we, wait, we've got a guy that can make food whenever he wants to? Like, we've got to keep this guy around because we'll never be hungry again. Very similar to what we saw a couple of chapters ago 
in you know, dealing with the woman at the well. It's like, wait, you can give me water? Uh, that means I won't be thirsty again? That's the water I want. But think about all of this in a culture where your entire life almost is dependent on the weather, right? If you don't have a good year of crops, if you don't have good rains, uh, assuming locusts don't come and devour your produce, like life seems like one big roll of the dice, but here's a guy that can change that. He's making food. We just saw him heal a bunch of people. Like, man, this guy must be greater than all the prophets in the Old Testament. Maybe he's the one great prophet that they said was coming that Deuteronomy speaks of. And then verse 15 says, but more than a prophet, like, hey, this guy has the power and influence we need. Maybe we should make this guy our king. Seems like he has the potential to do far more than any of the kings in the Old Testament. So they recognize he's greater than Moses, and he might even be greater than David. But unfortunately, they recognize this with improper motives, and we'll see that in our next passage. But in response, it says Jesus pulls away. He goes up to the mountain to get away from the people, and it's no coincidence that Jesus has now produced bread in a way greater than what we saw Moses do in the wilderness. And like Moses, he has now gone up to the mountain. And like the Exodus, God's people, the disciples, now cross the sea. And just like the Exodus, Jesus will show that he has dominion over the waters as his people pass through the waters. It's estimated that the Sea of Galilee, where, where they're on the boat now, is about seven miles wide. Uh, and it says in the text that they're about three to four miles kind of in. So they're like halfway. It, and the winds are blowing, and there's storms. It's about halfway on. So it's like, this isn't like Jesus is like walking along the bank of the water. It's like, no, he's like in the middle of the thing, walking on the water. Greater than any prophet has done. And then we see something other, otherwise miraculous, too, in verse 21. It's not specific, but it says, uh, as soon as he gets in the boat, they are immediately where they want to be. They are immediately on the other side. It makes it sound like there's some like teleportation uh, going on, which I, I think is the case. Um, but rightfully, like, man, there are some miracles going on in this text. The people rightfully recognize that Jesus is greater than Moses, potentially greater than King David, and yet they still view him, they still act with improper motives, which brings us to point number two, which is the people's desires reveal their hearts. The people's desires reveal their hearts. And we'll pick up our text again in verse 22 and read through verse 40. It says, On the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to, to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you were seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which is the Son of Man, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God 
that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Verses 22 to 25 show us that Jesus' miracles and walking on the water that really throws some people for a loop because they wake up the next morning they're like where's jesus he didn't get in the boat yesterday and now he's not here they start looking around and he's nowhere so they finally get in some boats themselves to look for him they go to the other side and they find him and they're just they're perplexed at how he got there um, but then jesus makes some very a very important point when the crowd finally finds him in verse 26 he he tells them about their true intentions he says look you're not seeking me because you love me. You're seeking me because I gave you food, right? You're following me because you are physically hungry. You're sailing around the sea. You're walking all over the place to find me. Uh, you're doing all of this work, but you're seeking the wrong thing. Don't do this so you can find food that's one day going to perish. Instead, he says, look for the greater bread, the food that will last for all of eternity, he shows them that they're looking for the wrong thing, pursuing with wrong motives. And like so often in our own lives, we only come to Jesus because we think he can help us. Like, well, I'll become a Christian so that my life gets better. I'll become a Christian so my family life gets better. I'll become a Christian so God will get me out of trouble uh, if I'm in it. Like, how many times have we prayed when something's going terribly wrong? God, if you'll help me, I'll serve you for the rest of my days. We treat God like a cosmic genie that will just help us when we need help. Now, it may be true that God does help us with those things, but that's just out of his mercy because he loves us, not out of some type of deal we have to bargain with God. In contrast to the food that perishes, Jesus tells them about the food that will satisfy forever. He tells them about the way to salvation. He tells them what, about what he calls the work of God. And so, doing what any of us would do, the people ask, well, what is the work of God? What does it mean to do the works of God? What are those? And Jesus clarifies, well, it's actually not work at all. It's not work on your part. Instead, it's an act of faith. In verse 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom God has sent. What does God require of us? What does God require of you? It's this, that we recognize Jesus as being divinely sent from the Father, 
that we trust in his message, that we trust in his character, that we believe that Jesus himself is God and the Son of the Father. And then as we'll explore later in the book, that he came to live a perfect life on our behalf and he came to die a perfect death that we deserved and that any who put their faith in him will have life. In response to this call for faith on their part, but the people then just asked Jesus to show them another sign. And that's a curious thing to ask because how many signs have they already seen? Verse, at the verse three at the beginning says, they started following Jesus because they saw people being healed. Okay, they've already seen some signs. Then they were there yesterday with the feeding of the 5,000. Many of them probably even ate the food. It's like, what other signs do you need? And yet it's a good reminder for us that it's human nature to not believe. It's human nature to doubt what God has done, even when we see it with our own eyes. We constantly seek more and more proof for what we want God to do, or what he's asking us to do. And they start talking to Jesus and they say, well, you know, Moses gave people manna in the desert and he did signs to prove who he was, so why don't you be like Moses and do some more signs? Maybe make some more food because we're probably already hungry. We just crossed that seven-mile sea. And this is where Jesus begins to pick up the heat a little bit in his response. He says, well, first of all, let's make sure we're remembering the historical facts correctly, that Moses didn't give you anything that God gave you something, and Moses just happened to be there. Furthermore, the true bread from heaven, it comes down from heaven, it's not from the hands of a man. And the true bread, instead, is the one who himself has come down from heaven. And the crowd says, yes, 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 that's the bread we want, the eternal one from heaven. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life, according to verse 35. I'm the true bread, I'm the bread of life. Come to me, even though you have seen me, even though you have seen the signs, he says, you still don't believe. And then Jesus gives one of the reasons for that unbelief. Verse 37 says that all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. The ones that God has called are the ones that hear the voice of Jesus and respond to him. Look at the logical progression of that passage. If you've been given to Jesus by the Father, you will come to Jesus. And those who come to Jesus will never be abandoned. This leads to what we call assurance of salvation. How do I know I'm a Christian? Uh, how do I know that I'm truly saved? Because Jesus won't let you go. Verse 37 says, Jesus will never cast you out if you come to him. Verse 39 says that he will lose none of which he has been given. If you start with Jesus, you're going to end with Jesus. Jesus will guard you until the end, and you will be raised up on the last day. And the evidence of that we'll find later in John uh, chapter 14, verse 21. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he's the one that loves me. And whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will reveal myself to him. The test of a true Christian is that your life displays the love of Christ. The true Christian life is exemplified by following the ways of Christ. If your life does not display obedience to Christ, then you can say on the authority of Scripture that you are not one of His. But this isn't some like, 
hey, do better, work harder. It's, no, my heart and my life has been changed and transformed by the grace and mercy of God. I now live in obedience out of love and response for that. But for those who are in Christ, there is security. And we see that in verses 39 and 40. It says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. That is the promise for everyone who believes. For those who don't believe me, you're still dead in your sins, and it leads to eternal death. That's what Jesus is saying. But for those who turn away from their lives of sin and believe in the Son, those who believe in Jesus, he says, there's eternal life. There will be a resurrection from the dead, just as Christ was resurrected. I was reading this week about uh, one of our country's founding fathers, uh, right before he died, it said he had arranged for two Latin phrases to be like inscribed on plates and placed on his coffin. Uh, the first phrase uh, was surge ad judicium, which means rise to judgment. The second one was gloria deo, which means glory to God. So in this guy's coffin, he said, I want, I want it to say rise to judgment and glory to God. And I think that's super cool. Like a further reminder that death is not the end of this life. Like, I may be about to get in the box, but don't lock it too tight because I'm going to have to get out of here again, right? That's the type of thinking of someone who believes in verse 40. It's like, I'm going to be raised up on the last day. I'm going to rise to judgment. I'm going to rise to life eternity. And I'm going to do all of that to the glory of God. I mean, this is a reality that surpasses all of our earthly endeavors and all of our attempts. So how did the people respond to this news? We see this, and this is a, what point number three is. The people complain about the bread of life. The people complain about bread of life. And so we'll pick up in verse 41 uh, and read through 59. It says, So the Jews grumbled about him. Because he said, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble amongst yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Just like the people of Israel grumbled and complained against Moses in the wilderness, so they now grumble and resist the greater prophet, God himself. Verses 41 through 42 reveal that they are willing to reject everything that they cannot fully understand. And we'll talk about this in a moment, but suffice it to say, they have allowed their finite mental comprehension to overrule everything else. They have made it impossible to have any healthy tension to exist between what you can see with your eyes and what you need to believe. They want bread like their ancestors received bread, but Jesus points out that all of those people who ate the manna in the wilderness, those guys still died. But Christ is offering a way to live forever. He says, eat the bread of life and never die. And this bread, he says, is Christ's body. Those who eat the body and drink the wine of Christ's sacrifice will never die. Any who receive this will find eternal life. Any who reject this will be condemned. And when the people believe that they cannot accept this, then some of them consider it time to stop following Jesus altogether. Which leads us to the fourth and final point. Some disciples think there is another place to go. Some disciples think there is another place to go. Picking up in verse 60 and reading to the end of the chapter. It says, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Which is just a great way of saying, like, what if you saw me go to heaven? Verse 63, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would also betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. 
And this part, this is a difficult passage of Scripture for me because you can hear the angst, you can hear the struggle that's going on in verse 60 when some of these disciples, some of the people who've been following after Jesus say, this, this is a hard saying. Like, who can listen? I don't understand how that can be. It's like there are people who want to believe, but something is in the way. And then Jesus has continued to hit them, which is like blow after blow, truth after truth, spiritual depth after spiritual depth. And it's easy to see why so many of them are struggling to understand it all. But yet, these are his disciples. These aren't just like random people that have decided, like we're part of the crowd and have joined in. So I want to give a few last items. If you're the type of person who wants to believe that you have doubts or reservations, or if you've just ever doubted God or any of his promises, uh, I think a few quick things to note from this passage. First, verse 63 tells us that it is the Spirit who gives life. There is a limit to what we can know and understand without God's help. Without God's help, we will never be able to understand things like we're supposed to, especially spiritual truth. We will never come to saving faith without the help of the Spirit. And so if you're struggling with believing God, the first thing I would ask you to do is to pray for the Spirit's help. Pray for understanding. Cry out to God because he says the flesh is no help at all. Like, you need the Spirit. The only time that you're going to find something that satisfies your hunger and thirst is when the Spirit is the one that leads your efforts. Second, I think it's important to recognize the difference between something being illogical and something being illogical. And I'll, I'll define those. If something is illogical, that means it contradicts itself or it contradicts principles of like formal reasoning, right? Christianity's teachings don't have those formal logical contradictions. They are not illogical. On the other hand, there are things in Christianity that are called illogical, meaning like to our perspective, it seems that it is beyond reason. I can't fully understand it. It's not, it's not contradictory. It's not inconsistent. I just I can't wrap my mind around it. The vast majority of things that we struggle with in our faith are illogical issues. Things not in contradiction, but in tension. Yeah, I, I don't understand how God's perfect sovereignty and man's you know, freedom to choose, I don't understand how those things work together. I'll acknowledge that. I know the scripture teaches both, and so I affirm both. But somehow they work together. It's just, it's beyond my comprehension. I don't understand how the Trinity works, uh, but I know there is a way uh, that there is perfect oneness and yet perfect diversity, and they coincide within the Godhead. There's one God, three persons. These things are beyond what I've been able to figure out so far and probably ever will figure out until we are raised in the resurrection. And you know what? To be honest, I'm okay with that because I serve an infinite God who possesses infinite knowledge and infinite complexity. And I would actually consider it a problem if I could understand everything about God and be able to explain it to you perfectly. Because that would mean that I'm worshiping a God that I created in my own image instead of a God that is infinite. There are always going to be things about God that we don't understand and things that we can't understand, but our responsibility is then to walk in all of the light that we have. 
One ancient saint used to say that the life of a Christian is faith-seeking understanding. Right? We trust in the things we know, we have faith, and we are continually seeking understanding on the parts that seem a mystery. We continue to study, we continue to learn, we continue to pray and dig deep into these things. But while we are seeking those answers, we continue to trust in the goodness and faithfulness of God. Besides, after you've been like, doing this long enough, you begin to realize that every other worldview, every other faith, every other option is so shot full of problems and true contradictions that Christianity becomes your only option because it's the only thing that's true. And it's like I've learned too much about Christianity to give up on it. And I think that's what Peter is talking about at the end of this passage. If you look in verse 68, he's like, hey, yeah, people are abandoning you, but where else are we going to go? Right? Who, else, who else are we going to go to? He says, Jesus, you have the words of life. No one else has those. I don't understand the weird stuff about you know, eating the body and drinking the blood that you just said, but until I can understand, I know that you're the only one that has life. It's only in you that that life exists. And it's only in you that we have found rest for our souls. It's only in you that our hearts find what they are longing for. So where are we going to go when we get frustrated? There is nowhere else to go. There's no other faith that answers the big questions of life in a way that is coherent and makes sense of reality as we know it. That's only found in Christ. And if you are like the crowd, if you are convinced that the only reasonable thing to do is to stop following Jesus, then all you're asking for is a life of confusion and loneliness because there's nowhere else. There is no one else who has the words of life. And as we read earlier, it should be comforting to us that, that that author of life will never let us go once we come to him. I want to close with a final word to those who uh, believe they are Christians but have lapsed into sin or think they are t- they're too far gone for God to now accept them. Uh, this uh, is an adaptation from uh, a quote by a man named John Bunyan, who's most famous for writing The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, But he once commented on one of the verses in our passage in verse 37, which says, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and those who come to me I will never cast out. I've updated some of the language, but here's what Bunyan says. I am a great sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am an old sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a hard-hearted sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I am a backsliding sinner, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have served Satan all of my days, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against the light, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have sinned against mercy, you say. I will never cast you out, says Christ. But I have no good thing to bring with me. I will never cast you out, says Christ. Because his mercy is greater than anything we could hope for and greater than anything we could ever show in our own lives, far greater than anything we deserve. 
It's interesting what we allow ourselves to believe, and it's interesting what we consider too far to believe. But the choice is yours today, whether you want to allow yourself to believe in truth and follow after the one who has the words of life, whether you, you will accept the bread of life that comes down from heaven, uh, or whether you will reject it, whether you think that you have somewhere else to go. So with that, would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Christ to the world as the bread of life. I thank you that there is nowhere else to go, that you didn't send us into the world with competing truth and confusion, that you showed us the way of life and showed us the way of reality. Lord, we know that the flesh is of no help in revealing your truth to us, so we ask that you would give us your spirit so that we could know you, that you would reveal your son to us so that we can see him and love him. We pray this in Jesus' name.